Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to hand over to Andrew, and we're in his hands basically till just about nine o'clock. We'll see uh, how much enthusiasm there is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Great. Andrew. Don't be scared by the handout. Having spent time at St Jude's, I know that there are some people who always want more. So I've gone for the oversupply of information on the handout that you can take away. I told Bridget this afternoon, photocopy it, photocopy it carefully because for some people this will be the most valuable part of the evening. Uh, You're not expected to know it all. There will not be a test, at least not from me. Uh, You can talk to church staff or to Jesus. Um, But for those of you who would like some of the quotes that I'm going to use for some of the statements that I think are central uh, ideas, for references... This is an idea, uh, I put it all on the paperwork so you don't have to sit there furiously copying things out. I want you to pay attention more to the big picture today, some stuff that will be on slides, some stuff that I'll communicate this way. Uh, It's a great delight to be here and to talk about Hebrews and I will go for as long as you'll tolerate tonight, but I'm aiming for nine o'clock. There will be some time for some concerted questions and answers at the end, but I'm really happy to be interrupted along the way. So if there's something that you think is spot on for right where we are, or I've spoken too quickly or unclearly and you just need to know where we are on the handout or what Bible verse I'm talking about, please just check your hand up or assume I haven't got my glasses on and just yell out and I will respond to the disembodied voice. I want to spend a lot of our time tonight saying not just the handout is not scary, but Hebrews is not scary. I've grown up in a ministry household and a number of you have grown up that way or are raising ministry households and I found that ministry kids tend to polarise They either really get the gospel and ministry and go for it or they really struggle with it and rebel against it. And I think people are much that way with Hebrews as well. If you've finally worked out what Hebrews is trying to do, you love it and, like me, you will think it's potentially... No, I'm I'm willing to even walk back from potentially. I will argue, partly tonight, that it might be the most valuable book in the entire Bible. So you might be one of those people already. If you're not, I've got 48 minutes left convince you of that and in three and a half weeks time there's a 150 hour class beginning at Ridley if you'd like to see a little bit more or if you're a little slower to be convinced. So I'm going to spend quite a lot of time on the first page of the outline just trying to work out what Hebrews is trying to do. Why does Hebrews look like the way it looks? Why do some people really find Hebrews resistant? And I'm conscious that you're here partly to learn for yourself or be enthused and encourage yourselves And some of you will be here because you then need to take Hebrews further into ministry. You might be part of the preaching team, you might be helping to lead a connect group and so on. So I'm partly delivering material tonight to give you some of the inside running that you might then be able to use and to use in a variety of different ways to assist others in your ministry care. So I will say a couple of different times tonight, some of what I'm doing right now is not what you ought to do in a connect group. Some of what I'm doing now is giving you some answers, but you might need to take, massage, rearrange those answers as needed for those people in your care. I'm conscious that we won't get onto all the questions and topics tonight, but at some point, probably in question and answer at the end rather than before then, somebody will want to know about these warnings passages that I've glossed over too quickly. Some people want to know about structures, some people want to know about Old Testament esoteric bits and pieces and I have to be good and not go down every rabbit hole that I want to go down. But the goal tonight primarily is to say that Hebrews might look scary, but Hebrews might be one of the most valuable pastoral books for your Christian journey and for those that you're caring for. I found it incredibly valuable in my journey, and I want to keep using this language of journey because I will say a number of times tonight, some of us can pick up a particular view of salvation that says, I'm nearly a Christian, or you're nearly a Christian, they're nearly a Christian, they're nearly a Christian, they've prayed the prayer, they're in the kingdom, that's great. Let's start working on the next crowd. And some churches and some church traditions and some mindsets, minds a lot like this, don't have much of a category for what happens after you pray the prayer. We know that parts of the Bible do talk about the language of journey, about growing into maturity. We'll see in Hebrews tonight some of the language of Are you still on milk or are you moving towards meat? Sometimes that's been used badly and so we've knee-jerk reactioned against that and gone, well, you're still a Christian and we don't want to start forming distinctions between mature saints and those who aren't. But if you've been around churches for any amount of time, you'll know that there are some people, and I know some of you who are here, who have been persistent, faithful and growing saints over decades. 
And I just stand in awe of people like that. I love going to Wednesday morning prayer meetings at my church and you meet maybe only three or four little old ladies all over 80 who are committed to praying. But you look at their faithfulness over up to 80 years worth of life and hard life and wars and family and whatever else. And when I grow up, I want to be like that. And I've just used that language of I want to grow up. I want to become more mature. And Hebrews talks about that kind of thing. So we'll be touching on that. And so there's lots of different ways we can pick out pastoral elements. If I were to be starting to preach on Hebrews and you'll catch me slipping into this from time to time tonight, I'd be talking about the difficulties of being a Christian in different parts of the world. It's hard to be a Christian in the 21st century West at the moment. You might have heard the names Andrew Thorburn. You might have heard the name George Pell. If you think about marriage equality debates or conversion therapy, most of the media around Melbourne, around the West, is dragging the name of God and his church more through the mud than putting it on a pedestal. I remember 15, 20 years ago, there was a time at St Jude's where clergy stopped wearing their clergy collars down Ligon Street. Young people like John won't know about this, but there was a phase where clergy were happy to be identified or at least tolerated down Ligon Street for looking like clergy. And then a particular month of a particular year came and it was just no longer safe to be so identifiable as a Christian in Ligon Street. There's plenty of other hostilities in the world and hostility comes in a variety of different forms and we'll see hostility in a number of different ways in Hebrews. But it's getting harder to remain a faithful Christian. And also in the 21st century West, it's getting hard to remain a faithful Christian because Jesus talks about the dangers and the traps of comfort, of wealth. So some of us might want to turn away from the faith because it's hard and some of us might just drift away because there are plenty of better distractions, more obvious distractions. Churches are finding it harder to timetable Sunday services because there's kids' sport, there's any number of other things on a Sunday, there's work to do. I get that. And Hebrews is written to one particular context where both overt hostility and natural apathy is threatening the members of the church. So Hebrews presents some of the problems and some of the answers to these kinds of things and will give us some advice on how we might shore up our own faith and then care for those that we formally and informally care for. There are plenty of commands and instructions, ideas, illustrations in Hebrews and many of them are foreign to us because the original congregation were interested in the Old Testament. So I'll have lots to say about the Old Testament as we go along. But one of the other reasons for comparing Hebrews to a sermon is because Hebrews is a sermon. It's written down for us, that's fine. I'll happily refer to it many times tonight as the letter to the Hebrews as well as the book of Hebrews. But here is not a pastor of this congregation, but he's a senior member of this congregation. He loves and cares for this congregation and he can't be with them to encourage them in person. So he writes a sermon for them and writes it down and sends it to them in letter format. So one of the things that the preachers are going to have challenge with in the coming weeks is it's hard to come up with illustrations for Hebrews because Hebrews is coming up with illustrations for its own pastoral purposes. So don't be surprised if you don't find lots of creative extra illustrations kicking in. But just as hopefully you find sermons that are intellectually stimulating and grab you by the heart and choke you into doing something, each part of the Bible is trying to achieve not just a change of mind but often a change of feeling and a change of action and you should be hearing that coming through Hebrews as well. One of the reasons that we find Hebrews different is because it is different to other parts, to other styles of the New Testament, to other parts of the Old Testament as well. It is one of those passionate documents that is trying to change your life, so you should hear passion and enthusiasm. You should feel in uh, delight, you should feel guilt at times, if it's appropriate guilt, uh, and you should feel Hebrews trying to grab you and move you around. One of the things that I want to say tonight is my own temptation, and I know the temptation of many at somewhere like St. Jude's, will be, what do I learn intellectually from this? That's a great thing to ask and it's a great thing that we'll start to answer but we also want the idea of what should I do or how should I feel in the light of this. 
So I'm, I'm moving around a little bit within Heading 1 on the outline, but just before I, I move on, let me address the last two lines in the introductions. So the message of Hebrews, Jesus is greater than X, Y and Z, and we'll meet X, Y and Z shortly, or Hebrews is better than X, Y and Z. There's a lot of comparison going on. So you should expect to hear that language. You should expect to see slides coming up from next Sunday saying Hebrews, better. It's the key word that runs through the document. Better. We're talking about comparison. We're talking about salesmanship, and I'll come back to salesmanship in a minute. Many of us, particularly if we're intellectually wired, might confuse the message of a document with the purpose of a document. Now, the message of Hebrews is all about Jesus is better than, but please don't think that the only outcome of reading and using this book in ministry is that you've been intellectually stimulated to compare Jesus to X, Y and Z. That is certainly taking place. It's a great thing to do and it will help us understand a lot, particularly when X, Y and Z belong to the Old Testament. How does the New Testament connect with the Old Testament? Hebrews is, for me, the ideal place to learn and unpack that kind of connection. But our author doesn't write this sermon down and send it to his church because he wants his church to pass an exam in biblical theology. We'll see in a couple of places that our author stops the sermon, thumps the pulpit, lets out a deep-hearted sigh. He looks around at particular faces in the room and I'm trying not to look at particular faces in the room and goes oh, you could be so much further along than you are right now. And you, and you, I know you're thinking about drifting away and I know some of you have got family who've drifted away. How can we shore you up pastorally? How can we encourage you in your journey so that you are not in danger of drifting away? How can you pray persistently and cry out for help when you're in that circumstance or when you've got family in that circumstance? So again, I want to keep driving this home. It is a sort of slightly... uh, Bible college kind of thought, but the more I think about this, even just walking to work this morning, there is a difference between what a document says and why it says it. You you might have met persuasive literature somewhere last year. Did you go through a federal election, a a state election? Did you get something in your letterbox saying, don't vote for them, vote for us? That's a very direct statement, but often it wasn't cast as a direct instruction like that. It was mostly, don't trust them or look at their track record on budget or infrastructure or whatever. So I'm sure the different coloured documents in my letterbox were not there just so that I would be informed who was doing what with the economy. The message was, this is what they're doing with the economy, but the purpose was to swing my vote. Hebrews will tell us a number of things about Jesus is better than X, Y and Z but the purpose of Hebrews is to encourage us and those in our care to continue despite opposition or apathy. So we're going to touch on both of those throughout the evening and I want to make sure that that's front and centre. And that leads me further back to the style of Hebrews because Hebrews does advertising and persuasion in a way that's potentially a little foreign to us. So I'm really used to black versus white kind of advertising. Don't vote for them, vote for us. You've got to choose your side, you've got to choose your colour. I've got a computer science background, everything is zero or one. Uh, I love black versus white. But then we find uh, that there are different ways of doing that. So you might come across this. If you were looking for a phone a couple of years ago, you might be comparing, here's an iPhone model specs and at the time one of the leading Samsung specs and if you've got an engineering background, you might actually care about some of the numbers that are there and some of you really just don't care. But you can do some quick comparison. You can put some nice little mathematical symbols in there and go, some of the specs are exactly the same, some of them are close enough, but when I look at these numerically, the one on the right is just bigger and better. And so it's really obvious, if you were a Samsung advertiser, you'd say, we do this and this and this and this better than that What sort of stupid person would buy an iPhone? That's the kind of advertising that I'm used to. It's a very polarised, binary, black and white kind of thing. And I'll say in a minute that parts of the Bible read like this. You might have been part of a theological tradition that wants to do that kind of negative advertising, negative contrast, and Hebrews does do a little bit of that. But Hebrews does a lot more of a positive comparison So I'm trying to get my words straight. Negative contrast and positive comparison. So uh, 
last time I gave this talk for Nat, I was thinking about upgrading from my iPhone 4. Four years later, I'm still thinking about upgrading from my iPhone 4. And so I need to look at a comparison chart like this. Here are some specs for models four models apart, but they're all for the same brand. And what you'll notice is there's a lot more consistency. I'll put a lot more details on the screen, and again, three of you in the room will care about the numbers. But apart from Warwick, the rest of you might be more interested in a table that looks a bit like this. Okay, here are all the good features for an iPhone 6. You can get all of those plus some extra features in an iPhone X. Oh, and by the way, some of the old features have been improved. I'm actually really intrigued to sit down this week and learn about iPhone 14. They're almost exactly the same as an iPhone X, but a couple of things are slightly better. But if I'm an Apple executive, the way I go about doing this advertising will be quite different than if I'm a Samsung executive. Because I'm going to be saying, see what already works well, see how this new model is good and consistent and that little bit better. And so here we draw attention to the similarities. There are actually lots of similarities between them. I, I don't like the iPhone way of taking dates, but you'll notice that if you've learned how to scroll a calendar wheel and a numbered wheel, that's the same across models. The changes are incremental. It's also true that there are some things that the old models don't do, and Hebrews does draw attention to some of that negative contrast, but it's much more this idea of positive comparison. And so we find that that's a little bit different to when we're approaching parts of the Bible and, again, depending on how we've, we've learned. So many of us cut our theological teeth on a book like Romans. And what I find is a book like Romans will, or at least what I've picked up in studying Romans, potentially wrongly, is how much contrast there can be between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We pay attention to the big differences between the two, like, oh, look at the Old Testament... We don't do things that way anymore. Look at the New Testament. Isn't it wonderful? Let's go this way. And we pick on and amplify the contrasts, that negative advertising kind of thing. I put quote marks around Romans. It's not only a Romans issue, but it's an issue for those of us who might think, like I think we sometimes think about Romans. But Hebrews is much more like that Apple sales pitch. It says, have a look at how much overlap there is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why we might find... Hebrews is a little bit daunting. It's got so much Old Testament. In fact, frankly, it looks like an Old Testament book that's somewhat been smuggled into the New Testament. Somebody put it wrongly in the table of contents. We've, we've thrown the word Jesus in a couple of times to placate people, but otherwise it's really an Old Testament book. But the reason it gets away with this is because it's making such a positive comparison. Here are all the good things that the Old Testament did and that are done the same in the New Testament and that are even done better in the New Testament. And I do want to acknowledge that there is awareness that there are some substantial differences and we'll find a couple of places. It's a bit subtle in Hebrews, but it does say, actually, don't go back to the old way. So I need to be careful with what I say here tonight, especially in a short amount of time. Uh, occasionally I will bring along a 2G phone. Uh, I've done this in chapel at, at college before. Look, I'm happy to say a 3G phone is better than a 2G phone. I'm happy to say 4G is better and I'm going to have to get rid of my 3G because I need 4G and eventually 5G. And there comes a time when I take my 2G phone and I just throw it across the stage and it hits the wall and falls in pieces because the network doesn't work anymore. And Hebrews will say that about the old covenant. But it doesn't highlight that. It's not the primary selling point. The primary selling point is you like the old system, see how much consistency but improvement there is in the new system. And so that's where we're going to take this kind of idea. Let's try it out briefly. If you've got a Bible in front of you, let's look at the first verse and a half. We're not going to go through all 400 verses at this same speed tonight. Don't panic. Uh, if you don't have a copy in front of you, there's the NIV text there for the first verse and a half. And if you want to use the space that I've put on the outline or if you just want to do this in conversation... In groups of two or three, whatever kind of number you're happy with, no, no groups of ten and no chat GPT, but from that first verse and a half, what points of positive comparison do you see? What points of negative contrast might you detect? I'll give you a minute and a half for a verse and a half. Go.
20 seconds. You've all gone quiet. I was supposed to give you 20 seconds of more vibrant conversation. Now, there's a number of different ways you could explore answers to this. Different things might work here in a talk. Other things might work differently in a connect group. You might want to present things differently. So, for example, on the outline, I've given you a nice little option for a table, so you might write comparisons and contrasts, one on each side of a table. Uh, I like having coloured screens around. So I won't rewrite this verse and a half these ways. Comparison. In the past... God spoke, sorry that the, one of the blue lines is out of place, but God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. In these last days, God continues to speak. So it's the same action, the same God, the same speaking God, although some things have changed because he's now spoken to us and by his son. So you'll notice there are a number of comparisons and contrasts. And here's one litmus test just to find out how you're wired. Which word would you put between verse 1 and verse 2? I'm intrigued that the NIV has gone, I've coloured it very darkly, but it's got the word but. So it's it's gone the Andrew Malone really binary polarised kind of thing. In the past God spoke that way, but now God speaks this way. So it's trying to drive a bit of a wedge between the two. Maybe 50% of Bible translations put a but in there. About 20, 25% of them put an and in there. God has spoken in the past that way and now God continues to speak, albeit to us and through his son. And another 15, 20% of Bibles are rightly copying the Greek, I think, and they're just not brave enough to put a conjunction there in English and they're just putting a bit of punctuation and leaving it to us to try and work out. Some of this is a positive comparison and some of this is a bit of a negative contrast and we should read some more verses in the Bible before we finally make a decision. But it'll be interesting just to see which way you might have jumped at that point. And again, this isn't just for the sake of, I want you to think about how God has changed his action. We're all good historians of the Bible. This is the way God spoke in the Old Testament. This is the way God speaks in the New Testament. But this actually comes to a highlight when we get to the start of what we call chapter 2. Because if God spoke that way under the Old Covenant and people paid attention to God and his prophets because people revered God and his prophets and they feared the judgement that would come through this partial revelation, here's what chapter 2 says, we must pay most careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. There's our pastoral application. Because since the message spoken through angels, the Old Testament was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore an even greater salvation spoken to us by God's Son? So compare and contrast, yes. Intellectual element, yes. Pastoral application, which is where the rubber hits the road here. And Alpha does this time and again. It's one of the differences about the way Hebrews operates to some of those letters that we're more familiar with, particularly those by Paul. We're used to Paul will give half a letter to theory and then half a theory, half a letter to practice. Many of our sermons are like that. I have lectured to you for 40 minutes and I've got three minutes to think of another few points of application. But Hebrews mingles that up together. We'll get some lecture and some theory. Then we'll do a little bit more Old Testament Bible study, then a little bit more application. And so that's actually a really helpful thing. It'll work really well with the St Jude series given that you're only going to get through the first 40% of the book this year. It's not like you're going to be sitting and learning all the theory and then go away for eight months and come back and maybe remember something when you get to the application. You're going to get theory and application time after time after time. And it's a great thing to be on the staff team here because the sermons partly write themselves. Here's the lecture, here is the application, here's how you should change your thinking and here's how you should live in the light of that. And the rest of us sitting in the congregation should be holding our preachers accountable to that kind of thing. So we're going to see that kind of compare and contrast all the way through. Here is what God has done in the past, particularly in the Old Testament. Here is what God is now doing through Jesus in the New Testament and the New Covenant under which we all live. Here's where there's some continuity that continues, showing the way God keeps doing the same things in the same way because he's the same God. And here's God's upgrade cell because here is the new and better model in Jesus and we've now lost track of the 2G network. There are a couple of headings under point two. These are the sorts of things that you might find resistance to coming to Hebrews for yourself. 
here are some of the resistances or problems that you might find for others as you speak with them informally or even in formal settings that you have. So the people who don't get Hebrews sometimes don't get Hebrews simply because we don't know it really well. Lack of exposure. Can anybody shout out a memory verse from the book of Hebrews? You'll know some. There are some. It's not a trick question. Thank you. That wasn't in my top five, but well done, Annette. She's got a good short-term memory. Other memory verses you might have heard? It'll come up a bit later. I grew up in a Baptist church and we don't believe in priests. Sorry, John. Um, and therefore we never did Hebrews. But when I sat down finally one day to study the letter to the Hebrews, it's got the line I heard most weeks in communion. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We've updated the language since, but there's that memory verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And there are a few other memory verses, but we know the lines, but not the rest of the message that comes with it. So, some of you and some people in your ministry care will find Hebrews just this brand new journey doing things that we're not used to. We've already touched on the fact that there is a lot of connection with the Old Testament and some of us come from theological traditions that do the negative contrast thing so much that we end up saying, well, you know, God might have invested the first 77% of scripture in the Old Testament, but it's all pretty much done with. We don't really learn very much about it unless I need to do something for Sunday Club next week, in which case it's going to be David and Goliath or some great narrative story. Because we don't have a lot of the harder parts of the Old Testament under our belt, we don't understand what Hebrews is doing with those harder parts. So there is something foreign about it and it makes it harder for us as we preach it, as we learn it, as we engage it. I actually think it works a number of different ways. So for Hebrews, Hebrews is going the positive upgrade thing because his congregation really knows the Old Testament and really loves the Old Testament, so he spends all his time there. He is his starting point that he can launch from. We might have to reverse engineer that and go, well, okay, we love Jesus, this is great. You want to be a good New Testament church? This is great. And the more we know and love Jesus invites us to go back and find out how God has set things up from the start of the story through the Old Testament. So it might actually be a good way to encourage people to learn more about the lesser known and harder parts of the Old Testament. But we recognise that we might be doing it in the opposite direction that the author of Hebrews is doing We don't know the name of the author of Hebrews. I'm happy to say he's not Paul. I'm happy to say he's a he because he once uses a word that describes himself in the masculine gender. You can ask during question and answer time and you won't get much more of an answer than that. But if we are people who don't know so much of the Old Testament or don't care so much for the Old Testament, we will find Hebrews harder going. We've already started to talk about the fact that Hebrews jumbles up the theory and the practical parts of the sermon, so it might be a style that we're less familiar with. And so we need to recognise we're doing a little bit of theory and a little bit of application. Pause, come back to tomorrow's reading or next week's sermon, a little bit more theory, a little bit more practice. It does include some hard parts, including some hard theology. It's got the stuff that says Christians might fall away. And some of us are quite comfortable with that, some of us are painfully experienced at watching that, but some of us don't automatically have a theological category that's comfortable with that. Or we don't want to acknowledge that this actually happens and we'd rather turn away from it. There's a whole bunch of really positive doctrine there as well. So, if you want to know more about the value of Christmas, read Hebrews. So, I'm really pleased that you're doing Hebrews. I'm really pleased that you're doing Hebrews any time of year. But one great time of year to do Hebrews is not February, but Advent because it's got far as much about the value of the incarnation as any other part of scripture. So if I need to sell to you why do I, does Andrew think that Hebrews is one of the best books of the Bible, you know, okay, you don't know the Old Testament very well, you don't like the Old Testament very well, you're a good New Testament person or a good New Testament church, do you love Jesus? The answer should be yes, it's rhetorical, it's okay, I'll, I'll assume this one, but if you want to see me afterwards, that's okay. Does your church love Jesus? Do you want to spend lots of time praising Jesus? Well, if you want to praise Jesus, Hebrews gives us some reasons to praise Jesus that we don't find in any other part of scripture. 
I challenge my students in my class to write more songs about Jesus, our great high priest, which we'll come to in a moment. And there are a growing number of songs about Jesus, our great high priest. It's great. But it's not language that all of us automatically use. I'm going down a different rabbit hole here, but uh, if you want to praise God for his work through Jesus even more thoroughly, Hebrews gives us some extra planks we can put in the pedestal and raise Jesus even higher. So there's a good selling point. One of the challenges when it comes to understanding Hebrews is that there are similar pressures in our world today but those who are tempted to drift away might be tempted to drift away in the same way. Those who are tempted to walk away are not always tempted to walk away into Judaism, which is what it sounds like for some of the Hebrews' congregation. So there are some differences there that we need to accommodate and that that's a real and valid difference. So we may not always be preaching that kind of contrast in some of our modern settings. And also simply the fact that some people like short books of the Bible. Paul writes a number of books that are shorter than 13 chapters. So let's study Ephesians again. Let's study Philippians again. I haven't checked the recent St. Jude's preaching also and I hope I haven't trodden on any toes there. But some people will struggle with Hebrews because it's longer and it's quite fair that St. Jude's is breaking it up into some chunks. Good moment for any burning questions if you'd like to ask any that have to be asked right now. In the remaining time, I want to just zip through something of a brief sense of the shape of the book. I'm a Google Earth kind of guy. If I have to get from here to home tonight, uh, then I might want to start with the big picture view and go, OK, I've got to go due east and then remember to turn south at one point. Once I've got that, then I can start asking the finer questions about where do I turn south. So we're going to tonight get a sense of the big picture, which means you've got a sense of where you're up to, even if people in your care don't need to know step by step what's happening. And the other reason that I want to give this big picture overview is because it brings the big picture message, the content, and a glimpse of the big picture purpose. And once we know what Hebrews is trying to say and what Hebrews is trying to achieve by saying that, then we should be really well equipped to understand what each part is trying to say that way. I draw Hebrews this way. It's on the outline so you don't have to copy it all down. Let me put it up on the screen. There are 13 chapters of Hebrews and they break down this way. Uh, I don't know why the bit in the middle has dropped down. You can see it doesn't look like that. All I can say is that St. Jude sets the bar lower. Um, It's supposed to be across the top. The reason I've done it like this is because there are two central bits sticking up. Uh, I tend to describe these, I'll describe them on the outline in a minute, as pivots. But they look a little bit to me like tent poles, like think of a camping tent or a circus tent. You've got the two big poles that hold up a slightly larger tent and then I've just draped the other parts over the top and lo and behold, I have a tent. And lo and behold, Hebrews goes on to talk about the tabernacle, so I'm not unhappy that my picture of Hebrews looks like a tabernacle. But if it makes you feel better, there are three big chunks, not quite exactly one-third each. I've gone with the creative descriptions of section 1, section 2, section 3. And as we go along, I will draw attention to these two big tent poles because they both say the same thing. They both reiterate the intellectual content of what Hebrews is trying to say, but they also bring out the core pastoral care of what Hebrews is trying to do. I've given a brief summary there uh, just under the diagram. So the centrality of the core tent poles, there are the Bible references for the two tent poles, They bring out the letter's primary concern. It's pastoral matter about how to hold on when following Jesus is hard. That's what this letter is trying to do, how to hold on when following Jesus is hard. It gives some overt instructions in those places and other places about how we might hold on and it gives us some of the theological backing for how and why we might hold on. And then the rest of the weight of the letter hangs around these two big central statements. So I want to draw attention to those two tent poles and then we'll see something of the tent decorations that hang off those tent poles. So the rest of the outline is just a potentially over-detailed explanation of what comes in each of the chunks. They may not be the same chunks that the sermon series goes through. That's okay. You can subdivide each of these smaller, but I think of these as being about the right number of mid-range chunks to work with. And for most of them I've said, here's a central to focus on, a comparison contrast. 
Usually here's a key theme and a key instruction. We're just going to zip through some of these. Uh, we won't do any of them justice, and that's okay. We're not trying to do any of them great justice. We'll pause here and there, and again, if you really want to ask a question, please let me encourage you to be brave enough to do that. So we've already introduced that first chunk. 1-1 one, one to 2-4, here's where we suddenly remember that the chapter numbers in English Bibles weren't put there by God. They were put there sometime later, and I think I've counted them up. Maybe somewhere between two and four of the 13 chapter numbers are in helpful places. But it means, don't be surprised, if sometimes the sermon series isn't a standalone chapter. So my first chunk, 1-1 one, one to 2-4, and we've seen we start with this comparison and contrast. God has spoken one way and now God continues to speak through Jesus. If it was valuable to listen to him the first time, how much more valuable to listen to him through Jesus? And so the application point comes at the end and I read a little bit of 2, 1 to 4. So we've got the comparison or contrast, the different ways that God authorises his speakers. The key theme is that God has spoken and continues to speak. And then the key instruction there I read before from the start of 2, 1, pay most careful attention to what we have heard as Christians so that we do not drift away. And our author is bringing in sermon illustrations. He says, have you been to the beach recently? You might be the parent or the grandparent of a, a well-meaning but slightly forgetful eight-year-old. Did they get a new rubber dinghy for Christmas? Did they forget to tie it up when they came in from a hard day's paddling? Do you suddenly, as a parent or grandparent, look up and notice it's getting further and further away from the jetty? Have you ever noticed that happening with any of your faith, the faith of family members? It happens. So our author gives his own sermon illustration and then says, hang on, let's learn how to tie up tight so that we are not guilty of drifting away. And we're going to find regularly, how do we help others to tie up tight so that they don't drift away? One of the challenging things about Hebrews is it's so communal. We are responsible for each other in this room and in this congregation and in this parish and in this diocese. And I'm taught by the rest of the week's advertising to care about myself. And gee, it's enough trouble to try and look after me, let alone worrying about you. But Hebrews wants me to look after you as well. So that'll be one of the really great lessons that we might pick up from here and where people are already wired that way, it's great. Let Hebrews encourage them and spur them on in that way. But for those of us who are challenged to think outside ourselves, Hebrews will have one more impediment. And then there also looks like he changes gears from Jesus' spokesman to the way that God nominates different leaders so the comparison and contrast in the second chunk is God's pioneering leaders. Who leads the people of God? We're not talking about local congregational leaders, we're talking about big picture leaders. And we say God has often worked through other human beings. God doesn't always speak with a nice, deep Morgan Freeman voice from the sky, but he actually picks a human to communicate to other humans. And we see here the beginnings of the discussion of Jesus' incarnation and says, Jesus can speak to us, Jesus can take us by the hand, Jesus can lead us, because God has become human and knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to cry his eyes out at night by feeling betrayed. And if that's the God who takes and leads me on my journey of salvation then God understands a whole lot more than I might sometimes think he does. So we see that brought out here in this second chunk already and it becomes a big theme right through. And again, you can start to see why Hebrews could become good Christmas material as well as every other time of year. And there's a key instruction, fix your thoughts on Jesus, our apostle. There's a word we don't usually bring out for Jesus. The only place that Jesus is called an apostle, there's more than 12 apparently, so don't just trust the stained glass windows around the place. I actually count about 15 or 16 named apostles in the New Testament and Jesus is one of them. And our great high priest. You might know and love priests. This is good. Again, we're not talking about ordained Anglicans. We're talking about what priests do according to the Old Testament and then what priests continue to do in the New Testament and we'll unpack that in another chunk in a minute. Then we get some further sermon illustrations from the Old Testament. Okay, you guys like the Old Testament. Well, let's have a look at how people have operated previously. What happened when God saved the Israelites from Egypt? Sometimes our Sunday school programs finish at, well, anywhere in Exodus is too early, but they usually finish once we escape from Egypt. 
We might get to the Red Sea, we might get through the Red Sea, we may or may not do the singing part in chapter 15. We don't usually know what to do with songs and poetry in the Bible, so let's just forget that. Let's just finish in the desert. But the end of Exodus 14 is the one place that the Old Testament defines salvation. God saved the Israelites from Egypt and they trusted his leader Moses. And we stop our Sunday school programs and go, that's great, we don't need the other 26 chapters of Exodus, they get ugly, we don't know what to do with the tabernacle, another one of Andrew's pet peeves. And we don't recognise that the people that God has saved then fall away from obedience. But Hebrews draws attention to that and then the rest of Exodus and into Leviticus and particularly the book of Numbers. Did you notice that the people that God has saved, the people who have the most direct revelation from God, the people who have the closest privilege and the greatest connection with God are the ones who can still disobey that voice, turn away from obedience and drift away. Don't be like that. So here's the key instruction of the one on the page. Encourage one another daily. Take care for each other so that none may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And Hebrews is a good mixture of parenting. So um, when we were raising kids in the church here, my wife turned to me, you go, you're a binary kind of bloke, fair point. Don't just tell the kids off. Don't just say, don't do that. Give them something positive as well. So it's not just, don't do that, but do do this. Stop beating up on your sister and come over here and read a book. And Hebrews does this all the time. There's carrot and stick. So don't just disobey like they did in the wilderness, but keep striving to enter God's rest. And we get some positive examples in that next part of chapter 4. Then we come to the first pivot where the key commands are, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, and the rest of that line is equally valuable. So the command, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. When you don't know how to pray, when you don't know what's going on in your world or God's world, God invites us into his presence. And that's the whole message of the second central part. So the first central part there I would summarise probably with this kind of language that's on your outline. Pay greater attention to God's invitation. So if you get the first line, that's all you need. But if you want a little bit more information, second line, pay greater attention to God's invitation now spoken through the superior son. The middle chunk is the hardest chunk because it's the most foreign chunk, it's the most Old Testament dependent chunk. But here's that first command, boldly approach God's throne. And if you want a bit more information, the rest of the central section, about 45% of the letter, approach God's throne, not just approach timidly, occasionally, but boldly, regularly, boldly, with confidence. Some people like to translate the word outspokenness. If you're one of those people who always wants the last word, God actually invites you to talk to him. Brave, but he does. And we can do this boldly through the son's superior priestly work. But we then get seven chapters explaining what priestly work looks like. And there's a whole bunch of material there, these next few chunks. Jesus' priestly ministry is introduced. I've talked already about the value of having not just anyone who helps you to approach God, but somebody who approaches God who knows what it's like to be a frail and fragile human. God has become a frail and fragile human so that he might better facilitate our access to himself. It's the same gospel message we know and yet it's cast in such foreign language from some parts of the Bible that we might think of automatically. Then our author takes a break in 5.11 to 6.12 and he uses a word at the start and end of that section that talks about culpable immaturity and says, you guys should be doing better. And quite seriously, I think he stops and thumps the pulpit if I, if I weren't cautious about other people's furniture. If I'm at college, I will stop and thump the pulpit and three students in the second back row wake up quickly. But he says, you should be doing better. Here's your temporary report card halfway through the year. We expect more from you. And uses that language of go forward, grow into maturity. I keep using this language of wanting to uh, encourage churches to think that there is life after conversion, not just the steps that lead up to conversion. Just a couple of weeks ago I found this great quote from C.S. Lewis. It's been around a lot longer than I have, but in 1954 C.S. Lewis wrote, how little they know of Christianity who think that the story ends with conversion. So I might repeat that again briefly in a minute, but how little they know of Christianity who think that the story ends with conversion. And Hebrews says, right, you've prayed the prayer, you've begun the race. I think it's still true that St. Jude's has a bunch of mad keen cyclists, 
This is just the start of the cycling race and again it's a communal thing. If you ride in a pack, you've got someone to help you with your flat tyre, to spur you on, to show you where you're going if you don't know how to do that. Apparently if you ride in single file there's some wind gain resistance, wind resistance gain and things like that. And Jesus uses this unique word, sorry, Hebrews uses this unique word for Jesus, the pioneer of our faith as well as the perfecter of our faith. And it says Jesus rides at the front of the peloton. He shows us where to go and he makes it easier for us to follow. And that kind of language is then unpacked in these sections. We talk about how reliable God's promises are. They were good under the old covenant. How much more are they through the promises he makes in Jesus? Then we run through the idea of priesthood. If you thought Old Testament priests could bring you towards God a little bit, not perfectly, not regularly, but they could forgive your sins for five minutes until you went out and sinned again. I'm so glad I wasn't a farmer back then. The the number of sheep you must go through if your life is a little bit like mine. But, nor should we do the complete negative contrast. It's not stupid things. So, So one of the things I do remember from my upbringing was the line, the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. That's my second Hebrews memory verse from growing up. But I've misheard that memory verse because it says to me the Old Testament sacrifices were futile. That's not what that verse actually means. You'll have to study Hebrews and wait till next year till you get to chapter 10 to find the answers for that. But there's an Old Testament priesthood. So I want you to have a look briefly at the last paragraph or two of chapter 7. So there's the text. you probably find it easier in front of you with the Bible. I want to give you two minutes just to do the same compare and contrast. What do you learn about Old Testament priests? What do you learn about Jesus as the New Testament priest? You can't find a friend. The good news is this passage isn't on until the continuation of the series and so I can suggest to people like the vicar that you could spend a whole sermon just on these six verses because there's so much to unpack there and I don't expect you'll find everything right now but here's a quick summary. So we find some of the negative contrast. We hear that under the Old Testament, the Old Testament priest, Aaron, quick the right way, you know, he was mortal and so he had to work with succession planning You need a new priest every couple of decades. You have to train up a new one. But Jesus is immortal. So you don't have to get a new Jesus. Once you're on good terms with meeting the new vicar, Jesus, just stay with Jesus. The Old Testament priests were sinful. So they spent some of their ministry time dealing with their own sins. But Jesus is sinless, so he doesn't lose any time caring for us, worrying about his own sins first. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant had a limited impact. He had to repeat them again. That's why you you might actually make money as an Old Testament farmer because there's a never-ending supply of sacrifices needed. But the New Covenant sacrifice of Jesus is so good it needs to be done only once and once ever. Described the Old Testament was under an Old Covenant or an Old Law. There was no oath involved but there's a New Covenant with a new oath. That's something to unpack later. But the last lines summarise the negative contrast. So Old Testament priests were men in all their weaknesses but Jesus has been made perfect forever. Now, there's a great series of questions to ask about what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? We'll get to that, not right now. But also notice that there's a bunch of positive comparisons as well. So don't forget the positive stuff. Under the old covenant, sin kept you away from God. And under the new covenant, sin still threatens to keep us away from God. God hasn't changed those game rules. Under the old covenant, you had to kill something 
to be able to draw closer to God. And under the new covenant, you still have to kill something to draw closer to God. It's just not a sheep. So I've obviously mistaught this to my Sunday school class because I had some 12-year-old wander up to me and say, isn't it great that nothing has to die for us to meet God? Almost. Almost there, not quite. And to get there, to get into God's presence, you need to have that sacrifice implemented by a sympathetic high priest, which remains true under the new covenant. We still need a great high priest who takes us by the hand and ushers us into God's presence. But here's a ministry of Jesus that we may not push very hard or we may not have heard before. It's one of the great things that Hebrews can teach us. And chapters 8 and 9 and 10 continue much in that same vein, saying, look, this is how things looked in terms of where the sacrifices took place. Here's a discussion of the covenants, the rules under which they took place. Here's a discussion of the sacrifices themselves and why the new covenant mechanism by Jesus, through Jesus, of Jesus is better than all those old systems. So there's lots of continuity. It's like having an older iPhone. You should recognise a lot of the family resemblance, but you should also see why you want the upgrade. Then we come to the second pivot, so I'm on the last page here at 10, 19 to 25. And our author just recaps his whole sermon so far. Jesus has entered into heaven. He's secured our access to God. And then we have two things. Here are two things we own or possess. We have confidence to enter the most holy place and we have a great priest. Now you're going to need eight chapters of content to appreciate why you need a great priest, but we have a great priest. And in the light of those, here are three commands. Let us draw near to God, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess and let's have a look around the congregation and consider each other, how we might spur each other on how we might spur each other on to love and good deeds and then there are a couple of further instructions there about rule number one, most of us here are probably good at this, not giving up on meeting together but there are church members who do need to hear that instruction and by encouraging one another overtly, how are you going in the race? What's causing you to struggle this week? How might I be able to help fix your flat tyre or fix your feeble knees, one of the images that comes up in a coming chapter and help you to keep limping along with me? And then the last chunk of the book takes us into some more practical examples of how to do that. So the primary command, thank you Annette for bringing this out before, I think the primary command of these last four chapters, run with perseverance the race set before us. It's a communal race, not an individual event. And then the primary example there is spurred on by Jesus' superior example. So chapter 10 tells us a bit more about the need to persevere. Chapter 11 might be something you're familiar with in Hebrews. It's a long catalogue of what looks like random Old Testament examples, but they're not just random Old Testament stories like, oh, what do I remember from Sunday school? Well, there was Moses and there was Noah and there was some other names that I wouldn't have remembered to include in Hebrews 11, but the author does. They're not random examples. They're examples of people who did not get instant gratification. It's another really countercultural chapter. We are so... I've just moved house. What happens if my NBN takes five seconds to load the web page I'm looking for? I mean, the end of the world has come. I still love the line from Homer Simpson, like, 20-second microwave dinner, Oh, isn't there anything faster? And Hebrews brings out this whole series of people who had to wait decades before God brought about his promises, but they faithfully persisted. Some of them went multiple decades and did not receive an instant earthly equivalent of that reward. And then the final example, which ticks over into a new chapter, is the one at the start of chapter 12, which the green text quotes. Jesus didn't receive instant gratification, but went the hard yards as well. We should fix our eyes on him and persist even when the race is not instantly gratifying. We don't have the reward we want right now. We don't have the life we want right now. If I dare to quote a book from Kurong, we don't have our best lives now, at least not immediately. Hang in there and encourage those around you. And then the last couple of chapters give various examples of things that might impede us in our ongoing journey into mature holiness and then some examples of godly worship. And I want to finish with that last key command. This comes at the end of chapter 12. And again, the chapter break might trip us up here, but the key command is actually be thankful. And that's a good challenge for many of us. Some of us get it really right. And I'm grateful to meet people who are so good at spotting the good things in that God has provided But I need this reminder, be thankful. And by being thankful, we worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So if you want to define what is good worship, step one, be thankful. 
and then our author closes with a series of practical examples here as congregation about what holiness might look like for them. So that's the overall shape of where the letter takes us. And then our letter finishes with this prayer, which I'll pray will be formally finished and then I will hang around for as long as people want to ask public questions and then when you run out of public questions, I'm happy to talk about private questions and if Nat needs to go home without me, that's okay. I will catch my own tram. But here is how our author commends his congregation to holy living and I commend us with this same prayer. Now may the God of peace equip us with everything good for doing his will, working in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. We've reached nine o'clock and I have, I have technically subsumed all the public question-answering times already, so I'm not at all offended if you do need to go, go and rescue the babysitters and so on. But we've got some time now for some public questions, so if you've got a question, particularly that you think would help others in the room, feel free to ask that now, and then I'll promise to hang around for a little bit after that if you've got something you really don't want to ask in public. Yeah, it's a really good question and I don't think I'll be able to do it justice right now. And preachers, you've got about 14, 16 months warning on that one. Uh, it's Part of the reason that it's difficult is because our author starts to blend together a number of those comparisons. So he wants to talk about what it's like to compare and contrast the priests and then he wants to do some compare and contrast of the sacrifices as well. And under the Old Testament, no priest sacrificed himself. He was always sacrificing a but go through a bull or some grain and so on. The trouble with the New Testament is that Jesus ends up being both the priest who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice that's being offered. So for now I'd prefer to keep those as two separate images and learn what we can learn about the language of priesthood and then separately learn about the language of sacrifice. But in God's New Testament economy, a whole bunch of those things start together, coming together in Jesus. So that might be already the confusion that you're starting to wrestle with but something is where some people will struggle. Um, so so yeah, I think it's better just to keep that language separate and once we're confident with each part, then we'll start to get... Well, I still don't actually know how Jesus physically sacrifices himself. There's a degree of willingness and then we've got the Trinity at work there as God the Father and God the Son. And then at that point is where one of the few mentions of the Holy Spirit comes in as well. So the triune God is then at work doing a whole lot of stuff in Jesus, through Jesus, because of Jesus. Great question. It's not fully answered, but it's going in the right direction. Thank you. Andrew, you mentioned that you found the book of Hebrews very helpful for yourself personally. Would you like to unpack that a little bit and give us your testimony? <laughs> Here's the short version. I, I am so much at home at St Jude's. It's very much my sort of theological, intellectual kind of, it's done a lot of the formation of who I am uh, I will resonate in most conversations I've had with most of you that I know and I'm sorry I haven't met all of you yet so you can imagine that I'm not prone to a Hillsong kind of moment I happen to be house sitting for the Rosners once and I happen to be working on what I've called Pivot One here and I diligently got out the Greek Bible and I was working through each of the Greek words and understanding the pattern. I could actually draw a little diagram of that pattern like uh, I do, did with the first verses or with the middle verses and so on. And it said, you might be struggling to... Sorry, Andrew's rough paraphrase, not an official Greek translation. You might be struggling to come to God. You might know, not know how to pray or what words to say right now. But God has become fully human in Jesus 
so that he knows what it is to feel distressed. He knows what it is to want to burst into tears. He knows what it is to not even know exactly what words to pray right now. But since we have such a great high priest, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find help. So I'm sorry if there's a little puddle of tears outside the bedroom in your old house because I actually got off the chair and sat on the floor, fell on my face in the carpet to weep before God because of his great mercy to me through Jesus. And one of the other great verses comes at the end of chapter 7 in that contrast that we had. Since Jesus always lives to intercede for us. So when I lie awake at night, which is not every night, some nights, and I don't know what to say or pray, when I don't know what God is doing in my world, I have a high priest who is awake all night, every night, interceding on my behalf with words that he knows that I would speak because he's been human and he intercedes with words that God knows God will hear because he is God. And I have someone desperately holding on to me when I can't hold on anymore. Welcome to Hebrews. There's the longer version, but it goes like that. Thank you. Let me launch just off that again. So I said earlier on, if you just don't care a whole lot about the Old Testament, you want to love Jesus more, well, it might be hard going, but Hebrews will give us more planks to put in that pedestal and raise Jesus higher because Hebrews says things about Jesus that no other part of the New Testament says. And Hebrews also reminds us of the difficulty to approach God. Now, it's great to celebrate the freedom of access we have and we do that rightly, but sometimes we do that so regularly, perhaps even glibly, that we've got it almost into the Jesus is my boyfriend phase and, and I don't want to knock all of that. We discovered once that, that, that I'm named after God. Do you not know the old hymn, Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me, Andy tells me I am his own? Um, and we get into that friendship with God that we are invited into but we lose the cost. And Hebrews draws us back to that sense of space, the distance. I've got some other slides which we weren't doing tonight, but the distance and the difficulty of drawing access into the grandeur of the almighty, inflaming God of the universe. And Hebrews 12 ends up with, our God is a consuming fire and reminds us of that difficulty and thence the value of the bridge that Jesus has forged. So Hebrews is also a way of helping us to reclaim something of God the Father, which we sometimes lose when we focus only on God the Son, and much of the majesty, the grandeur of God, the difficulty of access, and thence more of the debt of gratitude we owe to him for Jesus. So thank you. That's a good excuse for another little sermon from me. Yes, you're allowed. Yeah, look, there's a number of ways to unpack. So we're just talking about warnings passages and you picked out the two big ones in chapter 6 and chapter 10. There are five traditionally identified and they're pretty evenly spaced. So chapters 2, 4, 6, 10, 12. Not quite every even number chapter. And there's some very strong things there. So yes, it's really important to sit down and work out what we mean by the word sin. And I'd be following your second suggestion there. So I don't think it means oh my goodness, I've gone out and done something again, rotten again tomorrow. I haven't predicted tomorrow, but I'm fairly certain there'll be some sin involved. I'm hoping not, but I'm not very confident that it'll be perfect. So therefore, I think the language of sin here is particularly to do with persistent rebellious sin. Now, that then launches into the separate question that most people want to think about, which is, what does Hebrews mean by falling away and particularly the strongest warning in Hebrews 6 says you might not be able to come back again. And then the second strongest one in chapter 10 that you've also picked up also brings that out. 
Yeah, look, that, that's hard going, particularly for those of us in any kind of pastoral care. That's informal pastoral care peer-to-peer as well as those who are in church leadership. Uh, my very quick summary takeaway is take the warning seriously. God says there is a danger of straying too far. Don't test the boundaries. Hebrews might be right. But Hebrews then is an encouragement to keep moving towards God, to keep holding on as tight as possible and praising God for holding on to us. So the warnings parts are there, they're serious, they'll get preached on uh, and, and they are to be taken seriously. So I would, I would want to be more thoughtful of those warnings passages than I am of some of the get-out-of-jail-free passages that some people like to rely on. I think we're done. I'll take more private questions after that. Thanks so much, Andrew. We have tea and coffee and some supper out in the cafe if you'd like to stay. Uh, Andrew's happy to stay and answer more questions. Uh, Now that you've ventured out and enjoyed tonight, there's another opportunity next Monday night to come join us for St Jude's Prayer, so please do that. That's another really lovely way to spend an evening in Carlton. Uh, But Andrew, thanks so much for sharing your passion for Hebrews and uh, your heart as well, how God's worked a bit in your life through it. So thanks so much. Let's thank Andrew.